0: Morning. Good morning. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Judges chapter 4. We're going to look at Judges 4 as we continue our series on the book of Judges this summer. Um, as, uh, as we are going to keep watching the account of the Israelite nation spiral further and further and further downward in sin. Um, as they continue to do evil in the sight of God, turn away from God, and then God allows another nation to conquer them and oppress them, and then they cry out and God rescues them through a judge that he raises up. And uh, we're going to look at Judges 4 today, um, which is unique in the, in the book of Judges because it is the only place where we see a female judge here deliver Israel. Um, there's also some you know, graphic startling content in here. You know, if you're watching this on TV, it might come up with a message beforehand saying, you know, some of this content might not be suitable for uh, younger viewers, but uh, there's a little bit of violence in here. So just to prepare you for that. But, I mean, you know, you know some of us kind of wonder, you know, why does God work through this kind of ugliness and brutality sometimes? And I'm not totally sure, but if nothing else, maybe he wants to get your attention, Maybe he wants to get your attention. So let's listen to God's word as we read from Judges 4. Just to set the stage, um, Israel has turned away from God after they've been rescued through um, the last judge. And God has allowed them to be conquered by the king of Canaan, whose name is Jabin. And uh, it says that he has a general named Sisera. And one of the things that it says several times in this chapter is that they have 900 chariots which is a, a real serious advantage in the, when it comes to military strength back then. So they have 900 chariots, and they oppressed Israel for 20 years. So listen to God's word as I read, starting in verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general, general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobob, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. And then we're going to skip down to verse 14, but Sisera comes out against Israel with his chariots and his army. And in verse 14 it says this, And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor, with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Hagawaiim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jab and the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug, and he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk, and gave him a drink, and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead and the tent peg in his temple. This is God's word. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us as we think about your word here, as we think about this account of Deborah and and Barak and Sisera and Jael. Father, we pray that you would open it up to us, that your spirit would work in our hearts and our minds, help us to hear what you want to say about yourself to us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. (laughs) Amen. Well, there are... um, the, The stories that I find really inspirational are those stories where the people defy all odds, you know, to triumph, to have victory, or, to, or to over, you know, they overcome these great odds to do something incredible. I was watching a, a video of this girl who was, um, it's like six years ago, I guess, she was, uh, she was breaking all sorts of records at her school. She, was, uh, she participated in track and field in, in, her, in her high school, and uh, she was like the best pole vaulter her school had ever seen. She was, uh, she was you know, really like breaking all sorts of records and, and was doing all these amazing things on the pole vault. The interesting thing about her is that she was blind. She was blind. Can you imagine being a blind pole vaulter? I mean, uh, the odds are stacked against you. I mean, you, for, for any, any event in track and field, you would think you would need to be able to see to pole vault. When you're running... For, long, you know, for a long distance with a long, you know, I don't know, 10, 12-foot pole, maybe longer, I'm not sure, um, trying to go in a straight line, making sure you put the pole down at the right time. And she was able to do all of that, even though she was blind. It was, it was an amazing story, an amazing story. Um, I think that we all love a good against-the-odds story, a defiance of the odds story, because it gives us some joy in the midst of a world where we can feel like the odds are unbeatable sometimes. For us. Um, The odds are, sorry to tell us all, but remind us all, but the odds are that that we all won't achieve all of our dreams, that that the odds are against us. Um, The odds are against us when it comes to hoping to live a life that is pain-free, that is is conflict-free, that is free of challenges and difficulties. Um, The odds are that we will experience loss and we will experience pain. We will experience discouragement. Some of us are facing challenges right now where the odds are are totally against us. I know, uh, you know, if, if you are here and you either have received a diagnosis from a doctor or somebody that you know, some family member or somebody that you love has received a diagnosis, you know, maybe it's cancer, something like that. Often, whether it's, you know, from the doctor or when you go on the internet, you always find out what the odds are for the time you have left. Um, some of us are facing difficulties in our marriages where we feel like the odds are against us. And in the midst of a world where it feels like the odds are, are you know, stacked against us or maybe even unbeatable, what this chapter, I think, reminds us of is that we have a God who loves to beat the odds. He loves to go against the odds. Because what I see in here is, is I see three people that God uses and works through to defy odds. I see God defying the odds through Deborah, through Jael, and through Barak. And that's what I want to look at this morning, is each of these three people and how they defy the odds, how they go against the odds, how God works in and through them, and what that teaches us about God. Um, So first, I want to, you know, draw your attention to Deborah, as I mentioned before, she is the only female judge in the entire book of Judges. Um, and that alone, you know, is going against the odds. Um, I, I probably don't have to remind a lot of you that, uh, that in that day, it was a very, very male-dominated culture and society where women were sometimes even looked at as property, but at the very least, they were not listened to or paid attention to. And yet, here we have a woman who is leading the nation. You know, it's interesting, all of the other judges are warriors, but here we have a person who is, she, she is, you know, counseling people. She's making decisions for people. Everybody's coming to her for judgments. She is leading with wisdom and, and strength. And, and, and it, it's, it's amazing how in, in a world that is dominated, dominated by men, we have a woman that God is using to lead the entire nation, and ultimately to, and, and to save them. And, and she also mentions that she's a prophetess, right? She's, she's a person that God is using to speak through, authoritatively, to the people. And so, in all sorts of ways, she's defying the odds. And, and the, chat, the, the author of Judges, I think, stresses this point, it wants us to draw our attention to the fact that this is a woman leading the people of Israel. The very first verse we looked at, verse 4, In in all of our translations, it says, Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth. In the actual Hebrew, it doesn't use her name at first. It just says, Now a woman, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. And then later on, it introduces us to her. It gives us her name later. And I think the the writer of Judges is emphasizing, Look, look at what God is using. Look Look at who God is using against all of the odds against all that is likely in this culture. And, and here, I think we basically have another reminder of what we saw last week when we saw God using Ehud, the left-handed guy, um, where God uses all sorts of people, even though it seems very unlikely for him to do so, for whatever reason. No matter how unlikely it might be, God is able to and delights in using those who are unlikely candidates. And so if you've ever thought that it might be unlikely that God would use you to do something important or significant for him, to have a severe and uh, to have a significant impact in the lives of people around you, then make no mistake, God wants to use you, no matter how unlikely that might, that might seem. If you feel like you are have, have lived your life as a minority in some way where you have often been pushed to the side or people don't listen to you or, or want to hear your opinion where you feel like you don't have a lot of power, God is able to use you and he will use you. You know, we live in a much different culture now than they did then, but still I, I realize that, that in a lot of ways, Men have a great advantage over women in our society and culture. And for a lot of the women in here, it might feel like a lot of times you don't have a voice and you don't have the power that you should. And yet, make no mistake, God can use you. God will use you. Um, There are some here who are younger you might have already checked out and not listening to me, but some who are even very young might feel like you don't really have a whole lot of uh, impact on other people, you know. Um, no matter how young you are, no matter how unlikely it might feel like uh, that God will have an impact on maybe your parents or on other students or, even you know, your teachers or others, God can and will use you no matter how much it feels like it's against the odds that God can do something important and powerful and big through you. I've told you about, uh, I think I've told you, some of you guys have heard the story. When I was um, 11, I was in sixth grade, and I, uh, we had this assignment from my teacher who was really scary where we had to stand up in front of the class and speak for a minute, this public speaking assignment, and I was terrified. Um, it, it was like I, I desperately did want and did not want to do this thing and he called me I went up to the front of the the class I had to talk about airplanes for a minute and I failed like after 15 seconds I couldn't think of anything else to say and that's when my teacher just said Mr. Ridgeway sit down that's an F (laughs) my my, you know my poor you know gentle impressionable heart I, I walked back to my seat in tears and uh I still feel many of the same feelings about public speaking today as I did then. And I do it every week. Uh, yeah. Uh, that's right. <laughs> so no matter how unlikely it is that God can use a person, he absolutely can and loves to. All right? All right. So I think that's one thing that Deborah shows us about who God uses. He uses the unlikely. Secondly, we have Jael. I want you to focus on Jael. Jael has moved with her husband to he- husband Heber from the south of Israel to the north. It's interesting. So we don't hear about Jael until verse 17, um, and then back in verse 11 we have this kind of verse that comes out of nowhere where it just starts talking about Heber the Kenite. Why on earth are we hearing about Heber the Kenite in verse 11 where it just says, Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak of Zananim, which is near Kadesh. So we have this story that's happening with Deborah and Barak and Sisera and the, the army of Israel. And then out of the blue, we just have this random detail about this guy named Heber who moves from the south to the north. See, the Kenites were a people who lived in the south of Israel. All of the action in this story is happening in the north. Okay, And so um, there's this, this random you know, fact where Heber moves from the south to the north. We don't know why he separates from his clan, from his tribe you know, we don't know why he leaves the Kenites and goes north, but he does. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's a conflict he has with others. Maybe he just has this dream of living in the north. I have no idea. None of us do. But he randomly moves up there. And then we find out that his wife's name is Jael. And, and, and then as the story progresses we see how Jael, you know, well, Hebrew first of all, has this, you know, peaceful relationship with Jabin, but little does Jabin realize that, that Jael seems to have some sympathy with the Israelites. And in the end, God uses jail to kill the leader of the Canaanite army. Um, it's clear that God wants this to happen, that God uses her to do this, because earlier, you know, we say we have Deborah's prophecy saying that, you know, when she's talking to Barak, she's like, Barak, she says, you know, God, you're not going to get the glory. A woman is going to kill Sisera, right? This is all part of God's plan, and the thing that I want to point out here is that jail's not just some random person that Sisera happens to stumble into, you know, but actually God is, is orchestrating the events here, as we look at this chapter, this verse that seems very random in verse 11 is really just pointing out what God is doing. Like, Heber doesn't even realize that God is, is moving him up north for a reason so that God can use his wife. But I think what, this is an example of how God is orchestrating all the details, the small, the big, the seemingly inconsequential, to work out what he wants to happen, to work out something that is for the good of his people the defeat of their enemy. And and simply, this is is what I want to point out, that there is a lot that happens in life where we are tempted to look at it and say, God couldn't possibly use this. This is very unlikely that God could use this. The odds are stacked against the fact that God might use this. Maybe it's because it's so small and and random that that, uh, I think it's inconsequential. Or maybe it's because it's really hard and painful. Uh, maybe it's because it's really frustrating and inconvenient. I, why is it that every time I'm having a really busy, stressful day and everything, you know, I, I've got too much to do, more than I, can, than I can, you know, feel like I'm able to do, and things aren't going really smoothly, and then it's that day that I get in my car and I turn my key and it doesn't do anything. Why is it that day that my car chooses not to work why couldn't it be a day when I have tons of time you know why is it that sort of day that as I'm you know getting ready to go somewhere and do something that needs to be done we have a kid hit another kid with a stick and he's got like a giant wealth on the side of his head and we have to be like oh we got to take him to the emergency room you know why is it that that always happens does that happen to you too or am I just the only one and it, it feels like you know it seems very unlikely to me that God can use those things, that God is using those things for my good. And yet, I think we have a reminder here, as God uses jail, as as God uses the, and orchestrates where she lives and, and where her husband decides to move and everything. God uses it all, no matter how unlikely it might be. He uses it all for the good of those who know him and trust him and love him. Is there stuff in your life right now that you, you know, <laughs> have a hard time believing that God can use and is using? Did you have a really rough day this week? Um, is there just, uh, you know, did, did somebody do something to you that was really hurtful? Did something just go wildly wrong? God can and is able to use it all, to use it all for our good, as He orchestrates everything. Um, it's it's a reminder to I think this this is a, a kind of lived out example, a practical example of Romans eight. Where it says God uses all things for the good of His people. All things work together together for the good. And then lastly, we have Barak, um, who. I would say, I, I call him an overwhelming underdog. I would say, um, out of the, 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 the people that you would pick to be lead your army, he would not be my first choice. Um, and, and simply, it's because, you know, when, when Deborah reminds him of what God has commanded, you know, has not God told you, commanded you, go, gather your men at Mount Tabor. I will drought Sisera The general of Jabin's army to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give them into your hand. And how does Barak reply? Some of you guys are probably many of you too young to have seen Rambo, but like I I want him to go and like strap on his bandana, you know, and and get ready to go take some take some guys down. But he doesn't. He's like, well, if you come with me, I'll go. But mm, if you don't go, I just, you know, I don't feel comfortable. You know, Barack needs Deborah to go and hold his hand. <laughs> he he needs her to go and hold his hand and, and and he he needs her to give him confidence. He doesn't have the confidence that I would like my military leader to have. He doesn't have the courage and the boldness, the immediate apparent boldness that I want my military leader to have. You know, if I'm if I'm comparing him to Sisera, I'm like, man, I would have picked Sisera instead of Barack to lead my army. And not only that, not only you know, do we have the, the odds stacked against him because Barak doesn't seem like the, the perfect you know, commander of an army, but as I mentioned before, it, it, it mentions multiple times in this passage about the chariots that uh, Jabin and Sisera have in their army. They have 900 chariots, 900 chariots of iron. And in those days, that's, that's a significant military advantage. You know, if you have an army with chariots going against an army without chariots, it's no contest. It's no contest. The army with the chariots is going to decimate the army without the chariots. They're just going to get, you know, destroyed. And so maybe that might be why Barack was like, well, I don't know. It seems like the odds are somewhat in their favor. And yet, Deborah says, I'm going to go with you. And he goes, and then what happens, you have verse 14 and 15, which I think are probably central to the entire chapter, says this, and Deborah said to Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? She reminds him, God is going before you. God is fighting for you. He's not leaving you to go out there and fight them on your own, to stand up against the chariots on your own. God himself is going, and he's leading you. It says, so Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. God is the one who makes the difference in this battle no matter how much the odds are in in Canaan's favor because of their chariots, because of their superior leader, God wins the battle. God makes the difference because he is fighting. He is fighting for his people. This is the thing. Uh, This is what we need. We need God to fight for us. We need God to fight for us. I I mentioned at the beginning, it feels like a lot of life is, is, you know, the odds are stacked against us. If we try to fight on our own, we can't win. But we have a God who fights for his people. We have a God who fights for us to win for us. We have a God who has entered into our world as a man, Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, who came into our world to fight every day, to fight, to be obedient, to live a life of perfection, of love, and then he allowed himself to be hung on a cross, and he fought sacrificing himself so that we might be forgiven. See, this is the issue. Out of all of the things that we need to fight against in our lives, the thing that, that we, that the greatest enemy that any of us will fight, that all of us must fight, is the fight of our sin and our self-centeredness. And in that fight, we are completely overmatched. We cannot win if we try to fight against our own sin and its consequences of guilt and shame. We cannot win. The odds are unbeatable. But God fights for us. That is the whole point of Jesus' life. He's fought as he's lived and died and risen and triumphed over death and sin and guilt and shame. and The power of our self-centeredness. He's triumphed over it. If we want to live a life of, of fullness, of wholeness, of joy, the only way to do it is to count on God to fight for us rather than to try to fight for ourselves. As we think about the things in our lives where we are fighting, you know, the, the, the relationships that are broken the things that are happening in our, in our work world that feel overwhelming or very discouraging and difficult, as we think about fighting, as we think about fighting against, against the odds, dealing with problems that people that we love are facing, and it seems like it's insurmountable, the only way that we can actually engage with those things and, and, and trust that we are going to be okay is to count on God to fight for us in the midst of all of that stuff to pray to him, to trust in him, to rest in what he will do rather than in what we do. Stories that defy the odds are often inspirational, as I mentioned at the beginning, right? We love a good story that defies the odds. Um, That's why I love, uh, you know, the greater the odds beaten, the greater the inspiration, the greater the glory. We have a moment in here where God mentions glory here, where Deborah talks to Barak about glory, and when Barak is reluctant to go without her, and she's like, you're not going to get the glory. You're not going to get the glory. God's going to kill Sisera through a woman. It's not going to be your glory. Um, I think one of the things that that this passage reminds us of is, is ultimately it, it leaves us in a place where we are forced to recognize that it's it's not about any of us receiving the glory, but it's about God. It's about His greatness, His power, His strength. As as I said, the the glory is always greater when the, the odds that are overcome are greater. There are a lot of great movies, great stories that are about underdogs triumphing against all of the odds. You know, you have the the, the movie Miracle, I mean, you guys have seen that movie about the 1980 American hockey team that defeats the Soviet Union against all the odds. And the, at the end of the movie, you're just like, yes! Or you have, uh, I don't know if you've seen the movie The Rookie, about, uh, the, based on the true story about the 35-year-old guy in Texas who ends up, he's a teacher, and he ends up trying out and actually making it to the major leagues against all the odds. Um, for those of you guys who don't love sports movies, you know there's always Kung Fu Panda. <laughs> the, uh, the overweight and clumsy panda who against all of the odds becomes the savior of the valley of peace. You know, the greater the odds overcome, the greater the glory. Um, when we think about the odds that we face because of our sin, as I said before, they are insurmountable. We cannot deal with our sin and what we deserve. We cannot overcome it. The the odds stacked against us are completely insurmountable, greater than any you could ever imagine. And yet God sent his son to overcome those odds for us. We have this really striking and brutal moment in here, where jail takes that tent peg and a hammer and drives it through Cicero's head. I, I know some of you guys; maybe you're not familiar with this story. I heard some, you know, gasps in here. Yeah, maybe it is God grabbing our attention, but but I, I think, hopefully, um, as brutal as this is, you do not miss another moment where somebody takes a hammer and nails and drives it through someone else's flesh. Jesus himself allowed himself to be hung on a cross where, where they took nails and drove it through his hands and his feet, right? And it is through that act, that event, that the odds were ultimately moved in our favor. Our sin is erased and taken care of and forgiven. And we are set free. It was finished on the cross. And so that should lead us to to trust in Jesus, to rest in him and to cry glory to him. So let's do that. Let's continue to worship him this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would help us um, today as we think about what you have done here in the way that you used Deborah and the way that you used Jail and the way that you used Barack and the way that through all of them you showed us that you alone are worthy of our trust and praise, that you alone can win the victory in our lives, the victory over sin and death, that even though we face things that are hard and painful, that that ultimately we can know that we will be okay because we have a God who fights for us. Help us to trust you today. Help us to rejoice in you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.